Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, is respected as one of the leading political theorists of American history. He conceptualized a government originating in the households of the individual citizens and stemming from a questioning and rebellious public, requiring, he believed, a primarily agrarian population. Our guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious is Thomas Jefferson, personified by Chautauqua scholar Clay Jenkinson. We met in Ukiah, California in May 1994 and discussed what has changed in the United States since Mr. Jefferson took office as president in 1803 and the concepts he believed necessary to maintain a democracy. We began our conversation when I asked Thomas Jefferson to explain the ideas that he felt were necessary for democracy to thrive, the ones that he developed in the writing of the Constitution of the United States. Well, there were really two approaches to America in my time. One was articulated by Alexander Hamilton. He wanted us to follow the European model of monarchy, class systems, a mercantilist economy, uh, and uh, essentially the, the reducing of the states and the people to administrative units, government by elites, on behalf of the corporate order. I uh, represented the other point of view, which was that we wanted a farmer's self-government. We wanted a republic. Uh, unfortunately, Mr. Hamilton was more persuasive than I was, and the United States very soon ceased to be a republic and moved towards world empire. But I considered uh, our revolution to be one of the great moments in human history, and I saw that what was at stake was the whole future of humankind. And the question was, can people live quietly on the land and govern themselves in a mild uh, and frugal government? and thrive, live happily with rights and equality and the pursuit of happiness? Or is that a chimera? Is that some sort of illusion that, uh, that doesn't exist in, in practical affairs? I believe that this uh, farmer's utopia is possible, within our reach, in fact. In my time, 96% of us were farmers. But in order for this republic of my uh, vision to come to pass, four conditions have to be met, and they're very exacting ones. You have to have a largely agrarian population. You need to have a decentralized form of government with pure democracy at the local level. You need to have a very good public education system so that everyone is well-informed and liberally educated. And finally, you need to have mechanisms for social change. You need to be able to amend or revise your constitution and your other institutions from time to time to keep pace with human progress. When those conditions are met, then we can indeed produce the world's first republic. Well, let's address some of those um, in order. Talking about agrarianism, uh, now as you may have observed, the food is not produced in our backyards. It's produced by mega corporations with all kinds of mechanized assistance and chemical assistance. Do you see any way of reversing that back to the concepts that, that you profess? Well, I don't know. Uh, that would be up to you, of course. The earth belongs to the living and not the dead. But I think the only agriculture which is really worth having is family-based agriculture. In other words, agriculture is a way of life rather than a food production system. Uh, 
I'm, as I understand it, in your time, agriculture has entirely distorted into a production uh, industry. And in doing so, you have taken much of the culture out of uh, farming. So I think if you don't go back to some husbandry, some notion of land stewardship, some idea of people living quietly in, in small family clusters on, on property and subsisting, growing their own food, that your social fabric will inevitably decay to the point of uh, collapse. Well, if we look for a moment at, at China, one out of four people in the world now live in China, and most of the food that people eat in China is grown within 200 feet of where it's eaten. Um, is that somewhat of the concept that you're talking about, of, of the family farms? Indeed it is. I knew a little bit about China. China was a fascination of the 18th century, and we didn't think about it so much in terms of its agriculture as rather its culture, which was one of the most advanced and scientific in, in the history of the world. But I do think that people should produce their own food, that those, those Chinese people, if your statistic is accurate, are certainly closer to nature, more virtuous, less likely to commit crimes, uh, less corrupted by... Uh, by the perversions that are attendant upon urban life, less diseased and less discontented than they would be if they were crowded into cities, which I think are cancer sores on the, on the face of the planet. So people who live in nature really are God's chosen people. Now, we also must have a government that is equal to the goodness of man. And I understand that in China, there has very seldom been a government that is as, as good as the social fabric. Let's talk about uh, either education or decentralizing government so that we can have a, uh, I guess it's a pure participatory democracy that you talk about? Right. Education and, and participatory democracy are almost identical because at the local level, if you take 100 farmers or 100 citizens and, and make a democracy out of them, they will have to learn how to settle their own problems to elect temporary representatives to, to do things on their behalf to vote in majority rule, to accept majority rule as if it were unanimous vote, and the participation of speaking out, having a point of view, making that point clear in a public assembly, and taking on the modest governmental roles that will be circulated amongst that democratic body, that is a form of education. And so citizenship training comes from participation. You can't learn it in school. You have to do it. So it's maybe the most important form of education that a democracy can offer its people. But then it has to be coupled with a more formal school education. And I think there ought to be public schools in every county in America and that these schools should have two, two goals. One is to train young people to be citizens as much as that is possible through books. Uh, that's why we, we fund it publicly. And to inform them so that they are skeptical about power, especially accumulations of power. And the second goal of education is a more lofty one, but still I think it ought to be uh, included. We ought to educate our young people liberally so that they have a, a chance to be adults who know happiness. In other words, uh, that's not citizenship. That has more to do with literature and friendship and uh, conceptualization. With that in mind, I want to ask about a, um, a personal endeavor of yours. And that was when you were um, writing down and transcribing the many native languages um, of your time. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what happened to your transcriptions and where those languages went? Indeed, this was one of my favorite projects. I made a list of 250 common words in English. Uh, words like husband, wife, chief, uh, war, peace, birth, death, God, etc. 
and those words I had printed on forms. And then those forms went out with my explorer friends, or when Indian delegations came to meet me in Washington, I would have a secretary take down a vocabulary of that nation. And so we had a rudimentary vocabulary of more than 50 different Indian languages uh, by the time I retired in 1809. Some of them were produced by my friend Meriwether Lewis, who explored the Missouri country, some of them by Zebulon Pike, some of them by a friend of mine named William Dunbar, who lived in, in Mississippi. But at any rate, I collected uh, about 50 different languages, and I intended in my retirement to produce a kind of analytic guide to see which languages were related to which, and to trace, if possible, their origins to uh, either European or Asian languages, or to find out possibly that these peoples were unique to North America. But at any rate, those papers were destroyed by vandals. My, my private uh, baggage was sent from Washington back to Monticello by boat. And at the wharf in Richmond, a group of uh, vandals broke into my trunks looking for treasures. And when they saw these papers, they uh, assumed that they were worthless and dumped them into the river. They had no idea that the papers were worth more than anything else in my luggage. And so all of that material, except one or two muddy vocabularies, was lost including, unfortunately, several vocabularies of tribes that no longer existed. I consider this one of the great losses uh, to the Enlightenment, to science, and to myself uh, in my 83 years. Tell us um, about some of your other uh, lesser-known but equally important endeavors. Well, I considered uh, Lord Bacon to have spoken accurately when he said, I have taken all knowledge to be my province. I lived in the age of the encyclopedia, uh, an age which believed that it was possible for a well-educated human to know more or less what there was to know. Uh, obviously, uh, there's a bit of exaggeration in that, but, but I wanted to know something about every human science. So I was an amateur architect, and I studied Palladio's Four Treatises on Architecture and every other architectural and design book that I could come to. I was an expert in scientific agriculture, and I worked with uh, Andrew Young's treatise on agriculture and also that of Jethro Tull. I was inter interested in archaeology, and in fact, I you know, introduced to archaeology what's known as trench archaeology, the, uh, the careful digging of one layer of earth, the cataloging of it, and then the moving on to the next strata. Uh, so this was a, a kind of orderly invention of mine, which did change archaeology in some regards. I was interested in wine culture and produced some of the first uh, European vinifera in this country and also championed American winemaking and championed wine drinking as a way of life that would produce moderation and, and Republican values. I was interested in paleontology and I dug a, a, a series of grave sites um, and, uh, and animal uh, sites near Monticello and had bones brought to me from Kentucky. In fact, I gave the first learned paper on what's known as the Megalonyx Jeffersoni, the, the great claw, uh, a prehistoric sloth that existed in the American West at one time. I was interested in library classification, and I produced a, a tripartite classification of, of knowledge based on Lord Bacon's taxonomy, which became the, the system used by the Library of Congress up until 1870. And so in almost every field of endeavor, I tried to be an enlightened amateur, some would say uh, an enlightened dilettante, and to learn the rudiments and to, and to make some suggestions about ways in which we could bring reason and good sense and order to all human activities. Using what you have learned and, and applying them to your philosophies of democracy, 
What tools would would you recommend uh, for those of us living in the late 20th century, the, the waning years, to change our government now so that it can become more of a true representative democracy? Well, I'm not actually sure that you have the will to do that. If you had the will to do it, you would find the mechanism to do it, probably. But it begins by being well-informed. You need to know what bad government has been, so you need to study history. You need to know alternatives to the present state of things. Uh, That requires a a sampling of uh, the politics and the constitutions of other cultures, both in the East and in the West, historically and contemporarily. You need to have a sense of how power corrupts, and so you need to have a lively sense of the philosophy of human nature. Uh, I think the the Scottish uh, philosophers of the Scottish Enlightenment are are the best on that subject. But ultimately, you need to change an attitude, and I think that's more important than book learning. The attitude that I worried about is one that indeed has come to pass in great measure. I worried that you would turn your constitution, which is only a recipe for government after all, into a sacred document. And I wrote in a letter to Samuel Kirchival in 1816, some men look on constitutions with a kind of sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the men of the preceding age a wisdom more than human and assume what they did to be beyond amendment. Well, that's precisely what you have done. I urge you to think of the Constitution as a simple recipe for government to revise it from time to time, to amend it, to experiment with it. The only thing that is sacred and untouchable is the Bill of Rights, and everything else, I think, should be manipulated and, uh, and changed until you find a formula that brings about equality in your judicial system and a rough equality in your economy. Until then, uh, you have not finished your revolution. You're listening to a 1994 Radio Curious archive interview with President Thomas Jefferson as portrayed by Chautauqua scholar Clay Jenkinson. I'm Barry Vogel. Mr. Jefferson, in your observations of the government now, I'm curious as to what Uh, tune-ups or changes that that you could recommend. I know that uh, from your point of view, you're following uh, United States government and uh, the acts of uh, your successors in office and successors in interest. Well, uh, let me say, as I always do on on such occasions, that the earth belongs to the living and not the dead, and I feel a certain hesitation to to dictate my own opinions in your world. Well, nonetheless, uh, I'm curious. Uh, I'll happily do it with that invitation. I think the the largest single problem is your reverence for your constitution. I think habit uh, is a, is, a, is an evil in human life on the whole. I think we we are like Leibniz. We think we live in the best of all possible worlds, and we don't think creatively enough about alternatives. But here are some more specific recommendations. Your national debt I would consider to be a national disgrace. It's a way of taxing future generations without their consent. And I believe strongly that each generation that undertakes a national debt, for whatever reason, must pay it off within its lifetime, or that debt should be declared void by the principles of natural law. So there's, there's one element. Secondly, judicial review is a disastrous notion in a democratic society. Uh, the Supreme Court consists in your time of nine unelected, unaccountable, and indeed unimpeachable beings. Why should these people who are really outside of the will of the American people have the power to strike down acts of Congress, state legislation, or deeds of the executive 
when those other branches of government are all closer to the will of the people. So judicial review I consider to be the most anti-democratic idea ever foisted upon the American people. It was, of course, done by my Virginia cousin John Marshall in 1803. But the Constitution is silent on judicial review. Well, let me ask you about that. Uh, since it was done uh, by John Marshall, and that was done, I believe, right around the time you uh, took the oath of office to be the third president, do you see a way of changing that? Uh, without judicial review, you basically have the third part of government, the judiciary, being without any power at all. Well, I disagree. The judiciary will always be the highest court of appeal. And as you know, it has original jurisdiction in certain cases involving international maritime disputes and uh, interstate uh, quarrels and so on. And in fact, right now, it is uh, taking original jurisdiction on a dispute between New York and New Jersey as to who owns Ellis Island. Well, that's exactly the sort of thing that a Supreme Court can settle, because you have a sovereign state, New Jersey, and a sovereign state, New York, and if they come to uh, uh, some kind of a wall in which they can't resolve their differences, we don't want a war between these states, and so we have a, we have erected a final arbiter. I think that's, that's legitimate and, and important. In my time, by the way, the Supreme Court justices also rode circuit which I consider to be a way of keeping them uh, close to the people and, uh, and, and in, in nature enough so that they would not be as corrupted as they inevitably become when they're isolated. But um, I think judicial review is quite another matter. Judicial review foisted upon the Constitution in 183 in the case Marbury versus Madison gives to the Supreme Court enormous powers that were really never intended for those individuals. And my question to you would be, if they're the guardians... Uh, who protect us from anti-majoritarian legislation or from a trampling on the Bill of Rights or from anti-constitutional activity, who protects us against them? Who will guard the guardians? Uh, the only way this idea works is if all of the Supreme Court justices are men of unimpeachable virtue and Republican values who believe strongly in the Bill of Rights and would never uh, sell their vote uh, to corrupt American society. And I think you can you can show instantaneously that this is a, a wild idea that can never be found in reality. It would seem to me that we might take a circular view of the three powers of government, the legislative, executive, and the judiciary, so that if the judiciary says a certain act is unconstitutional or is commanded by the Constitution, the people through the legislature uh, and the several states and then the uh, the executive, if necessary, in, in promoting it, could change the Constitution, which is somewhat of a slow and, and inept way of doing it, and it's happened, I believe, uh, 28 times. Yes, it has, and I certainly recommend it. Of course, most of those 28 amendments are relatively frivolous. They're not substantive. They have more to do with uh, form and logistics than with uh, justice. But that's certainly a legitimate approach. But the problem is that the amendment process is too difficult. I said in 1823, you know, the genius of amendment is to make it neither too difficult nor too easy. But even then, it was too difficult. So you have to uh, open the door to change in a way that I think you are not now doing. So that's something certainly uh, worth your considering. But I also think that if the court strikes down acts of the legislature, it is essentially thwarting the will of the people. And in democratic theory, the will of the people has a right to prevail even when it is unenlightened and illiberal. And I do believe in a kind of circular approach. The Supreme Court should say what it thinks about laws. But then the executive or the legislative should say, thank you, we will take that under advisement. But this is not a binding decision. 
when the Constitution was written, the will, and if we presume that that was a document representative of the will of the people, it said that uh, black people or people of color were only three-fifths those of, of um, white people. Uh, is that a democratic presentation? Of course not. Uh, that was a corruption that found its way into the Constitution. By the way, I was not a, a member of the Constitutional Convention and, and, and can take no credit for that clause or the other eight references to slavery in the Constitution. The problem was that slavery was so deeply entrenched in American life that the Constitution makers soon realized that if they attempted to resolve that issue, there could not be a Constitution produced. That the only way that a Constitution would be enabled is if that uh, great... Uh, and terrible social problem was postponed for solution at some later time. And so you got the unhappy three-fifths clause and the, the fugitive slave provisions and all sorts of other um, fossils of an anti-libertarian, anti-enlightened people, which uh, are a scar upon your national history and upon your constitution. But in their defense, I think it's, it's fair to say that if you had not postponed and compromised on the issue of slavery, you would not have been a nation at all. And to some extent, it was uh, addressed again with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments uh, uh, 30 or so years after your death. But look at what brought those amendments about. And those amendments were only possible after an extra-constitutional civil war, the greatest calamity that can ever occur in a nation. Those amendments were unthinkable without war. And so some problems, unfortunately, are so difficult that they can only be solved through extra-constitutional means, and then the constitutional uh, language follows in the wake of the crisis. So uh, that gives me a double sense. I mean, partly it, it satisfies me slightly to realize that my generation was not uniquely responsible for the problem of slavery, that slavery was going to be a, a, a critically difficult, even a civil war situation, no matter when it was resolved. But it also gives me a sense of guilt that by postponing a solution to this problem for two generations, we made it much, much more difficult to resolve when it eventually was resolved. Before we come to the end of our talk, Mr. Jefferson, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests, and, and that is, have you read any interesting books lately that you could tell us about? Well, I read books constantly. I read five, six, sometimes ten hours per day. So oh, let me recommend a book to all of your listeners. This is not a new book. It's one of the oldest books uh, of humankind, but it's one of the most important. It's Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, uh, which was really the first uh, book of systematic sociology and history. He's a Greek writer, and he's writing about a war between Sparta and Athens that occurred in the fourth century and essentially destroyed Athens. And in it, there's something called the Funeral Oration of Pericles. And it is really one of the most important documents in the history of human freedom. Essentially, what Pericles says in his speech on the occasion of war martyrdom is that the greatest defense for Athens is not militarism. The greatest defense for Athens is to produce so just, so beautiful, so enlightened, and so true a city-state, a polis, that all of the citizens will be enamored of that city-state. And then if they were attacked by some illiberal nation like Persia or Sparta, the citizens would rise up spontaneously as a militia to repel the attack. In other words, the greatest defense for any society is to build justice and good sense and equality so that everyone has a stake in preserving that social order. And that is much better than guns and warriors and a permanent navy. Thomas Jefferson, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. 
And I'd like to now welcome Clay Jenkinson to Government Politics and Ideas, who has been portraying uh, Thomas Jefferson for us. Clay, welcome. Barry, it's always a pleasure to come back to Ukiah and Mendocino County. Briefly, how is it that you have developed the in-character persona of Thomas Jefferson? Well, it's, it began as kind of a humanities gag, a way to get history to people who otherwise might not come. But what I discovered early on, Barry, was that Jefferson is so extraordinary a character that he really is asking the most important questions that ever get asked. Uh, how do you change a culture that's in trouble, as ours uh, definitely is? Um, how, do you, how do you trust the people? Can you trust the people? Under what circumstances can we govern ourselves? Uh, what, what kind of a social fabric do we need in order to be a happy people? Now, Jefferson's answers may not be the ones that we choose. After all, between Jefferson and ourselves, there's been a civil war, an industrial revolution, two world wars, uh, an information explosion, the, the transistor, and, and, and the hydrogen bomb, among other things. So Jefferson is, is hardly capable of being naively translated from his own time to ours. But he's asking these questions, and that's what the humanities do. The humanities raise questions in a disciplined and historically grounded fashion, and then urge citizens who are listening or participating to take up these questions in their own lives and find a way to, to sort them out, to clarify these values and these, these paradoxes that are at the heart of every culture. So Jefferson is, in a sense, a perfect humanities vehicle because he was so articulate and he had radical but, I think, rational ideas, and he wanted us to think very much and, and often, almost continuously, about what is really at stake in any civilization. And if you look at ours, you know, what's at stake is uh, is uh, Beverly Hills 90210 and 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 Reeboks and and basketball players. I mean, the things that we give our attention to um, tell us what's at stake, and that I think uh, would gr- would greatly depress Thomas Jefferson. Where do you look to get your information on Jefferson? Well, you start with Jefferson himself. He wrote an immense amount. He wrote uh, twenty some thousand letters, uh, which if you add up is a lot of letters. He wrote five, six letters a day, most of his adult life. Uh, That makes him easy to understand. He was very clear, too. I mean, there's almost no passage in Jefferson that isn't clear, unlike many, many other writers. And then there are hundreds and hundreds of books written about Jefferson, but mostly what I do at this point, I mean, I I keep reading to, to refresh myself, but mostly what I do is try to think through an idea. Take, for example, slavery. We don't have slavery. It's fashionable now to beat up on Jefferson and other founding fathers for ownership of slaves, but surely we have slavery in other forms. Uh, You in California know uh, the the kind of laborers that make possible your agricultural uh, productivity and and profitability, or wage laborers, people the permanent underclass, etc., etc. And so we we can use Jefferson to get at things that are contemporary. There's much to pursue here in future discussions and in the remaining um, minute or so we have left. I would like to ask you the question I ask all of the guests, and that is, can you tell us of an interesting book that you have read lately? Uh, Jerry Mander's book, In the Absence of the Sacred, which is a wonderful book. What's interesting me now is is a reestablishment of the sacred in our lives. Uh, I don't think it's going to come about from Christianity or Judaism or, or Mohammedism. I think those, in a sense, those are spent forces for social change, at least broad social change. But I think we definitely need to reestablish the sacramental and the sacred, and it's going to come from Native American culture, from uh, an increased attention to the earth, and from some sober thinking about living lightly on the planet. So I recommend highly Jerry Manders in the absence of the sacred. 
Clay Jenkinson, thank you very much for being with us here. Thank you. This archive edition of Radio Curious with Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, as personified by Chautauqua scholar Clay Jenkinson, was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on May 21, 1994. The book Mr. Jefferson recommends is The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. And the book that Clay Jenkinson recommends is In the Absence of the Sacred by Jerry Mander. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. The phone is 707-462-6541 and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.